Today on Never Was a Gamer, did you get thirst trapped by the tall bird man, the hot blue alien lady, the sexy frog, or the faceless purple modest is hottest teen? My answer, yes. Welcome to Never Was a Gamer, the show where a late-blooming gamer makes up for lost time playing everyone else's formative games. I'm Michelle, and this is my favorite store on the Citadel, Dimitri. Hi. Uh, <laughs> well, today, I mean, your intro doesn't make much sense today because, you know, you're not playing everyone else's formative games. Today, you're playing one of your formative games. I'm going to hurt my own feelings <laughs> instead of everybody else's. <laughs> it feels fair. Yeah, today you're revisiting Mass Effect because, you know, we're on the end towards wrapping up the show, as we talked about last time. We're coming back from a a bit of a hiatus because life gets in the way. And, you know, as you start to wrap up and reflect on what you've learned, what you've experienced over the last two years or so, we thought it'd be a great idea for you to come back to Mass Effect, which was the series that I'm guessing were were among your favorite games. That's at least how I would I would say them. Um. They're definitely the ones you thought the most about, you know, fondly or not at certain points. I think you oscillated. (laughs) But yeah, I thought, you know, that it could be really fun for us to revisit Mass Effect now that you've built up, you know, this whole other catalog of games. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm really glad to be talking about this. Um, This was kind of the first uh, game series that I ever loved that I like found and chose for myself. It wasn't I didn't play it because it was recommended by you. I had seen, you know, some people whose tastes I respected around say that they really liked it. I bought it on a whim for myself. I think it was like right after I got a PlayStation 3, which was my first adult-owned game console that I that I got for myself. And it's it's one of the only one of the very rare games that I actually played before you did. Um Yeah, I remember that. I remember yeah, can you would have bought the trilogies, just so people have a sense of where you came in. You bought, you know, the three-in-one package that included all the DLCs. So when we start talking about, you know, the ending of Mass Effect, you didn't you didn't have to get the patch ending. Like, that was already patched in. The yeah. DLC for Mass Effect 3 was already available. So you got to play kind of that com- more complete edition. Uh, and yeah, you yeah. probably played this about a good year before I did, I'm guessing. Yeah, probably. I think it was a couple years after Mass Effect 3 came out. So, you know, a little like after the peak zeitgeist had had happened. Um, I missed all the all the Internet wars about the ending and all that, which is probably good. And I mean, yeah. And I mean, part of that is one of the reasons I didn't play it. Um, You know, just hearing things kind of in the ether, just in my mind, it's like, okay, I don't have time to dedicate to three games where people seem to be unsatisfied. And so that's one of the yeah. reasons I stayed away. And then, um, yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I came, I, claim, I came around to it. I don't think I ever bonded with it quite as much as you did, but that's uh, kind of what we're here to talk about. Yeah, this is, you know, I also, I kind of went into the series with no preconceptions about it, other than the vague sense that some people who I like, like it. Um, and boy, is that the right way to start a game series if you can if you can make it happen like prime prime conditions to to like not be disappointed by something this is really like this is my experience of like the sweet side of nostalgia right where 
when I play these games again, which I've been replaying them recently, um, playing the Legendary Edition that just came out on PS5, I can still see what I saw in these games. I think that the first time or first couple times I've played them, I just also see a lot of other additional things <laughs> that aren't <laughs> that like didn't matter to me at the time, but are now part of how I look at games that change the calculus a little bit. Um, I still think they're really fun. I still feel incredibly tender about them. Um, but uh, they, they're they a good barometer of like how much my tastes have shifted, I think, over whatever the 10 years ago that it would have been. Um, so yeah, this is my this is my getting some skin in the game of like our criticisms of like formative games. It's also worth saying, I think here that uh, this is very much a relic from I think an era where my primary way of relating to games was as storytelling devices, which is not really where I'm at now. And so, you know, a lot of what really bonded me to them in the first place was that stuff. Um, and I think Mass Effect is a good series for people who are in to games for that stuff. Um, right, and it's still yeah. fine to be into games for that stuff primarily, right? Some people, and I mean, of course. yeah. And, you know, I think that was your way in through story. Um, and yeah, you've definitely expanded your range. But I think, you know, we all still go back to games primarily for story sometimes. Yeah, and honestly, I'm having a great time replaying them. Like, I'm going to say a lot of stuff that's, <laughs> that's critical of it today, partially because I think I've talked about this on the show before, but... Um, I have this syndrome that some people have where they hate all their favorite things. Like the more I like and the more I see a value in the way anything in media has set up its its um, its framework, uh, the more critical I become of how it delivers on that. Because I get it's almost like a you should know better. Like you, there was enough there for you to to start building something incredible. So like, what happened? <laughs> I would say that tendency extends beyond media. <laughs> <laughs> possibly <laughs> maybe um so this is good this is like peak like michelle hates her faves is mass effect is like the the number one like michelle hates her faves <laughs> victim uh, apart from maybe you <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's, it's because i like so much of the chess pieces that it puts on the board um and then you know i i have to like mentally be editing so much as we go through and it's like okay i kind of i think i know what you were trying to get at there it didn't really work i'm just gonna like mentally overwrite that in my own head with like how i think it should have gone <laughs> so yeah i mean i guess before we get too far in i should probably just set up what these games are they're a pretty conventional western rpg uh shooter third person um, they're produced by BioWare, which is famous for uh, the Mass Effect series and the Dragon Age series are their two main uh, contemporary franchises. Um, basically, you play as Commander Shepard, who's a very incredibly special space marine. You're in sort of a future where humanity has discovered there are all these other uh, civilized alien races, sort of a Star Trek future a little bit where there's like interspecies cooperation. You go on an adventure get some squad mates, have a ship, uh, find out that there's a, a sort of apocalyptic invasion that's going to be coming. And over the three games, you're sort of working to unravel that and, and stop this um, this world-ending event from happening, this invasion of the Reapers, who are the, the things that are going to come from dark space and kill everybody. Something that I've never forgotten is that one time I heard the first Mass Effect game, because there's three in the trilogy, and, and they are... 
they have a lot of the same core cast, but some differences. I've heard the first Mass Effect, um, which is definitely the most uneven of the three, described as unaware of its charms. And I've never forgotten that description um, because I think that encapsulates so much of what is wonderful about the first one. Um, It's very full of unpolished but very evocative corners um, that create, I think, a lot of imaginative pathways out into the world. For someone who likes to have a little bit of a flavor of something strange where it feels like there might be much more going on under the surface, but we're not really going to explore that right now. And that is like catnip to me. Um, and, And still I find that so compelling going through. I mean, the first game is like mechanically quite rough. Like the shooting doesn't feel incredible. There's a lot of reused environments and assets. Like it it doesn't feel like it has quite the same scope as as later games. Um, but it still manages to lay out uh the the context for what is for me a really compelling world and framework um that is absolutely worth worth spending three games in. I think it's pretty telling that I I don't really want more Mass Effect games in this era or like related to this this story that are in this like RPG shooter genre but I have always been hungry for spin-off games in different genres that are set in this universe um like a Telltale style thing mm. or like like imagine like a game about like a mystery game about being a detective in uh csec on the citadel that's like the the security basically the police at the main sort of interspecies hub of of all of space which is called the citadel i'm sure have there been uh spinoff novels written do you know okay this was actually going to be one of my final thoughts (laughs) don't read the tie-in books don't read them they're awful. What there is are some excellent fan fictions. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. so direct your attention there. Yeah. Um, you know, full novel length uh, accounts of, you know, the, the first contact war. You can really get into that shit if so, you really so want then to. So then you weren't. So then when they revealed the little teaser for the, you know, the new Mass Effect that is in development and hinted that it's actually going to be part of this first continuity, you're not incredibly excited about that. I have taken a very Zen position about all of this, which is that um, I think there's a good chance that there will be a lot of stuff about it that's good and cool. I'll definitely play it for sure. You know, I can pretend that I'm not going to, but like I played Andromeda, like I'm going to check these games out probably. Um, But I'm very like, wait and see, Um, because the truth is, I think also like if these games came out now, they wouldn't hit me the same, right? Like Mm -hmm. I... Partially, I think I have evolved to a place where like I have to be able to live in some of the nostalgia of this world for it to be satisfying for me. So I really am kind of like agnostic on how much pleasure I could potentially get from any future installments. See, that, that is so, a, th- those are the words of a true gamer. Yeah, it's like I'm jaded enough. I hope for nothing. <laughs> I expect nothing. I'm disappointed by nothing. You just have to live in the nostalgia. That is, that is the that general. Is, yes. <laughs> general state of being yep a hundred percent um give me a like a colony sim game like a something about the first anyway so there's it's telling that i i dream about being in this universe without having to do it through any of the core mechanics that are present in these games um 
And yeah, I think part of the magic here is that there's so much blank space. Um, there's there's lots of small details and also lots of room. Like this, especially the first game really contemplates a galaxy where it's simply too big for the people at the core of this intergalactic civilization to know what's going on in every little corner, right? There's like weird people who've hold off, off on in little like communes on different planets doing their own weird experiments and it's like yeah there's all kinds of crazy shit out there like that that sort of feeling of like we have no idea like we don't know like that's really part of the animating spirit particularly the early games before they get really focused on the reapers and that's just fun you know that's like a a classic 60s sci-fi we're a spacefaring people now kind of shit and that's fun and like some of how you know it's sort of um, its cousins in like the Star Trek framework um, succeed. It really shines, I think, when it leans into uh, the camaraderie between uh, squad mates and its characters and um, the sort of focused story bits. It has some incredibly great characters, or at least ones that it's very easy to read greatness into um and ones that you get to spend time with over the full three games and go through like substantial changes and growth over that period um not just little single plot like video game character change shit like i think we i think in lots of ways we like evaluate video game writing much more generously than we evaluate writing in most other mediums yeah i've heard i can't remember who said it It was some designer who made the point that anytime anyone ever says that a game has a great story they mean it has a story Yes. And I think about that all the time. Yes. <laughs> yes. That that's this. Um that's here. Uh, I think there's you know, more than a like a story here, you know? Yes. I think there are genuinely good like um Rex is one of my favorite characters in all of video games. Um for context, Rex is one of your squad mates in the first games. He is a Krogan who's like an enormous like picture a dinosaur crossed with an armadillo. They're like a very like warlike people. He's great. Um, he is one of the only characters who articulates the position that his species is actually fundamentally different from humans and not just like uh, he sort of kicks back at the, um, you know, the logics of racism mapped onto species that like old sci-fi kind of does. Mass Effect has like a bit of a flavor of that, which I've criticized David Cage for, you know, transplanting racial dynamics onto robots and stuff in the past. Um, Rex is in some, partially a great character because he pushes back against those sorts of ideas and starts to like, no, like the Krogan are what they are. And any future we imagine for ourselves has to understand that we are fundamentally different than some of the other like main uh, galactic species. But I think it like doesn't lean on that stuff too hard. I just the the breakdown of alien species is so great. And I don't want to take like a 20 minute section of this episode to run down alien species because that's not fun listening. But like these games are also very mid 2000s. Like it is so quaint to me that in Mass Effect 1, they didn't think people would want to fuck the aliens. <laughs> Except for the Asari, who were like, basic, they're a, a species that is all just phenomenally hot, like blue alien women who like have this sort of swept back hair thing they look like they just stepped out of a pool. 
Um, like they're they're designed from the ground up to be desirable. And I just like in 2022, they would have known. You know what I mean? And by Mass Effect 2, they're like, okay, the people love the Birdman. We don't understand why. The people really want Shepard to be able to sleep with the lizard Birdman. And you know what? I'm people. I'm part of this. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I love the crew in this. Like I really, part of it was was projection, but part of it is a handful of really phenomenal standout characters with like really, really great voice acting um, and interesting arcs for a lot of them. Um, Liara is another, she's one of the Asari who, um, you know, the the blue sexy alien ladies. You when you meet her, she's like barely more than a teenager in the sort of development of Asari lived for like a thousand years, but proportionally she's like really quite young and naive. And you go with this arc with her over three games where by the end she's this like incredibly worldly information broker with a really sophisticated long perspective on history and who's able to be like uh, a really unflinching realist about um, what's going on in the galaxy without being cynical about it. Like just a, just a really expertly crafted character, I think. And, you know, you have, you have characters who have reversals of, of um, positions on galaxy shaping events that they were involved with in, in the past. So much of this is just really, really lovely character work. Um, set against, you know, some really big, fun, high sci-fi video game ass video game stakes. Uh, And that's a recipe for a good time, I I really think. You know, one of the when you played through these games, what did you what did you know about and what did you think about the Paragon Renegade system? Because I know this was what I get the sense this was something that was like talked about a lot around the time that it came out. Yeah, you know, this is around the time when anything, even, you know, the most basic thing that presented itself as like a morality system or a choice-based system seemed to have been universally lauded. I mean, this comes out the same year as Bioshock and I think treats those issues with the same uh, subtlety <laughs> hammer as Bioshock. Roast them. Uh, <laughs> You know, and it, it it was it was a much simpler time. And again, you know, this is, I think, again, uh, very much a symptom of when we say that a game has a good morality system, we mean that it has a morality system. <laughs> you know, that yes. it's just like impressed by anything that seems uh, unique or, or, you know, pushing the medium forward, even if I think, you know, the way that this is implemented and the way it's implemented, implemented in Bioshock actually like held the medium back for a bunch of years because it was just... <laughs> Not just because it was replicated um, so frequently. Um, it's yeah. It's I mean the fact that it is a Paragon Renegade system, right? That it is it is a binary morality system. Yeah. Where and uh, for the most part, especially I think it becomes a bit more ambiguous by the third one. But it's very clear what you know what each of your decisions, where it's going to allocate those points, if we want to if we want to kind of break it down into that sense, right? That it's very clear, like, what is going yeah. to give you Paragon points? What's going to give you Renegade points? Um, these systems don't let you actually, you know, make choices as you make them because you always have in the back of your mind this, like, min-maxing of, like, what you're... Instead of just kind of letting your character evolve and become the character that it is based on your playstyle, 
just this very setup, you're always thinking, am I a paragon or am I a renegade, right? So you're always kind of doing that second level of uh, of thinking about your choices that then I think determine your choices in a way that probably wouldn't if they didn't give you that kind of annoying feedback of you you did the paragon thing or you did the renegade thing. Um, and like this, this text option was literally blue on screen yeah. so that it, like it's a different color to show you that you're going to get the paragon points if you choose this. Yeah, like I'd much rather something that... Again, when we're thinking about games of this era, I mean, it's, it's a few years later, but even something like the Telltale Walking Dead, where it wasn't always clear, you know, which choices were impactful choices, how people were going to interpret your choices. You'd often get that little line that, you know, X character remembers what you said. Um, oh, uh, you know, like so tense, <laughs> you know, and, and it's like that system is not that much more technically sophisticated in any sense, but it adds so much more um unpredictability and you know you actually give the sense that you're developing a character in a in a in a natural way or or in an organic way as opposed to yeah again kind of you know intentionally writing the character that you want to write because the game tells you that you have you know two possible um choices as part of this binary i like your articulation of of um the player trying to write the character that they want to write. Because in a way, when you say that, I'm like, oh, that sounds great. I would love to do that. That's not what this game lets you do. <laughs> because, you know, um, choosing, for example, a renegade option, which is like the badass option, that can be anything from telling someone that you don't want to do their stupid side quest and they should solve their own problems to like calling your beloved crew member a slur. Like both of those things happen as the result of like renegade options. Sometimes, you know, and this is a this is a often criticized thing um, in in RPGs that have this sort of like dialogue wheel system where you're choosing one of multiple options. Is that you often are not a hundred percent sure what the thing is that mm-hmm. Shepard is actually going to do or say. Yeah, or how and the line is going like, to be read. Yeah, sometimes it is like. Uh, you know, say something a bit selfish, but quite pragmatic that like you could think of a sort of um, a cynical, hardened character of saying, and sometimes it's just be the biggest asshole you can imagine for no discernible reason, which is a very different character choice. Um, and so, you know, sometimes apart from it being uh, silly structurally um, and exerting, I agree, a sort of distorting pull on the choices where you would rather respond to situations organically. You know, there also are multiple cases in this game where I remember on playthroughs uh, trying one of these options, particularly like renegade options, Mm -hmm. and being so horrified by what was said or done that I turned off the game and went back to a previous save and reloaded. So I was like, I, I can't, I did not tell you to call one of my favorite characters a ableist slur in the opening seconds of Mass Effect 2. That is not, that is not within the options I had contemplated for this. Because even, you know, Paragon versus Renegade, it's even kind of this false binary, like, because, yeah, like, being... You know, using slurs is not what I think of when I think of a renegade, you know? Right. <laughs> like, a renegade is not a, necessarily, a, a like, a vile, abhorrent person. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's very interesting because I was trying to think, um, like, in D&D alignment terms, you could not at all say that, like, you can kind of say that uh, Paragon is any of the good alignments and renegade is, like, any neutral or evil ones, mm. but... 
it doesn't give you a lot of predictive feedback in advance of of what is going to actually happen, which means, I guess, bright side, you can be surprised, <laughs> but like downside, you can be surprised by by what you end up doing in this game. Um, the Paragon Renegade system also is interesting because I think the game really wants to set you up with choices where these binary directions make sense, which means they're often presenting you with what I would argue are incredibly simple problems as like moral dilemmas, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. This is something that happens all the time. Like just as an example, in in Mass Effect 1, one of the when you meet um, a character, Garrus, who it ends up being one of my favorite characters in this. But when you meet him, he's been working in for security on the Citadel. And his main internal conflict when you first find him is that he had been tracking this like serial killer and he almost had him. But the serial killer boarded a civilian ship and uh, the ship left the Citadel. And Garrus is like, I told them to shoot the ship down, but they wouldn't do it. Isn't that wild? And like... Wanting to shoot down a ship full of civilians because there's one guy who did crime on it is like not a big moral conflict for for me and I don't think for most people. But your your paragon and renegade options are like tell Garrus that killing civilians is wrong, or like say yeah that the the regulations the red tape shackling the hands of like cops like us that's awful you know like. It's such a cartoonish version of of what that of what that morality is, and it's it's so complimentary and flattering to the player, regardless of which you choose. Like the choosing the like Garrus killing is bad option gets you like twelve paragon like so many paragon points. The game's like, wow, you're a really great person, Shepard, and Garrus will be like. You know, I never thought about it like that. You've given me a lot to think <laughs> about. Thanks, Shepard. Um, like it's very, regardless of of what you're what you're choosing, it really wants you to feel good about that choice. And like, there's something special about the fact that you made it. Yeah, um, G- yeah. I, I find games are always at the worst when they try to set up variations of like the trolley problem, and sure. so, and much more interesting when you know when you're not. When you're not making a single a singular decision on some kind of you know major issue like that, where you know your choices are again much more um, an accumulation of smaller choices lead into what the character is rather than you know what you know should you have shot down civilians or not like that's not an it's not an interesting choice. It's such a shoehorned no. choice. Yes, and, and yeah, and, and um, all all of the games that kind of you know, our choice based are usually structured around those. And yeah, for me, I always find those the least interesting of all the choices they present. Yeah. And this is part of why I I wanted to talk about the choice framework, because in some ways, I can't believe that Bioware got away with making these the like your choices matter games. Because I mean, there are some aesthetic differences in how you're your campaign plays out depending on whether you've leaned heavily into the Paragon or Renegade options or some, a couple of key plot choices. Um, and I should say, like, the game really wants you to lean into maximizing one of those two things. Like, the more points you have in Paragon, the more Paragon options are open to you to respond to. So it really is encouraging you to min-max. Um, but for the most part, 
and this is part of what people didn't like about about three and how it ended like you're playing the same game man like you're hitting almost all the same plot points you're ending up in the same kind of position with not a lot of difference in what your final you know ending outcome can be and and partially i understand this because like you know particularly for the era to have truly branching narratives is probably unfeasible for most studios just in terms of what it takes to produce a game like this isn't writing a choose your own adventure book right where you just like publish the story and people find their way through it like there's an incredible amount that goes into developing game content that won't end up being seen by some players yeah though i i guess i wonder also though to what extent these decisions were just um kind of a symptom of bioware's previous work on knights of the old republic and just not being able to think outside of the uh star wars morality paradigms Mm. um which is like jedi sith yeah, it's like you you either are, you know, you kind of lean towards the force of the dark side and those things are very kind of clear cut. And, OK, listen, Star Wars nerds, I'm sure there's some kind of tangential thing that has a more nuanced like morality system somewhere in the extended universe that doesn't even exist anymore because Disney killed it. So don't get on me for this. <laughs> I'm just talking about what I know, which is not that much about Star Wars, but I know about the dark side. No, I know about the force. I know that those things are not very nuanced. <laughs> This is part of why I don't like Star Wars that much. Um, And yeah, so I wonder just, you know, how much they were kind of already tied to that kind of, you know, that system and that way of of thinking about morality systems, even though I think they aspired to more. So if you, you know, if you think of the, uh, you know, the uh, Star Wars, Star Trek continuum, it's like they had, it's like they desired the nuance of a Star Trek, but they could, they had to rely on the uh, heavy-handedness of a Star Wars in terms of how it's thinking about, you know, moral problems. Yeah. Also, I think it's, it's, there's, there's something hard about, I think, constructing a Star Trek that works when you have to share input and, and generative creativity with a player that you don't have control over. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you, you have to, account in some ways for what people who are not you are seeing and will want to do when they open your game, which is different than people watching a show like Star Trek, right? Um, yeah, I one of the one of the interesting things that really has jumped out at me on replaying these games is one of one of the core words that I would use to describe them is manipulative. <laughs> um and I, I don't mean that in a purely sinister way. I think at its best, this game is really skillful at wringing big impact out of things that are sort of not. I mean, I think as like all story-driven media are manipulative. Like that's that's right. They, they have to be right. by essence. Right. But one of the things that jumps out at me the most in this is how everything, every inch of all of these games is pointed towards, I think, one effect above every other. And that is making it clear that Shepard and you are the most special people who ever lived. Like, regardless of whether you are going full renegade, slur-slinging, genocide-doing, like, full asshole, or, like, full paragon, or a much more complex thing, like, this game so trips... Everybody is impressed by you. Everybody like responds to your suggestions and your moralizing at them. 
everybody is is imp- everyone who meets Shepard is impacted by them. And I I think this is symptomatic of like um you know trying to give the player agency in the space and and feel like what you're doing is impacting the world. But it just comes across in this way that to like to my eyes in 2022 is like a little bit embarrassing. Like I that how hard the game works to express how special you are, to uh, demonstrate that you have this persuasive ability that no one else in the universe has. Like one word from you can turn people right around. I mean, on, you're on you're the shepherd. They like they don't right. they don't really beat around the bush around about this. It's a it's almost a Toriel situation where they tell you up front what you're gonna get and who this character is. Oh, Shepard! No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> all this time. <laughs> Wait until the one day you finally get onto Deus Ex and you meet J.C. Denton. I don't get it. Yeah, I, another another weird consequence of this like desire to uh, sort of maximize the times that you choose either um, Paragon or Renegade is that you can end up with a really inconsistent character, which also makes it weird uh, to to be in this hero worship environment um, because you sort of don't know who this person is. Like, if you have someone who will choose both extremes of behavior without sort of coherent internal reasons why they would make such a decision. Um, and I think this sort of like refusal to ask Shepard to live by any sort of particular values is like representative of, I think like a bigger genre problem that these games have, um, which is like the sort of Star Trek style sixties, like liberalism of it all. Like I think, in the way this game sets up, it's moral quandaries, it's like big sci-fi political questions. I think it is imagining like the most boring, milquetoast liberal imaginable who is like never given two thoughts to anything beyond like good politics is when you aren't mean to people. Um, like it sort of really imagines someone who will like tisk tisk about racism, um, but will not have like anything that they sort of are are hoping for like able to connect that to um 
I guess as an example, because this is something I see repeating over and over again with Bioware, um, you know, humanity as a species, like our main sort of competitor, like foil uh, uh, species, is the Batarians. And from very early on, it's set up that the core problem with the Batarians is that um, they have slavery as a core part of their culture. Um, And the game sort of imagines this as being something that the player would feel conflicted about, which imagines a type of polite racism where you're really trying to get along and not say anything rude about anybody else's culture, even though it's like slavery. Um, And Bioware particularly has this weird pat. There are two issues that Bioware has these friggin' weird patterns with. The first is slavery, because this slavery as like a gotcha moral question to like push the boundaries of how tolerant you want to be of like other cultures or species also comes up in Dragon Age. And and Mm. the only reason which I have not played any of those. They're like fun if you feel like that kind of thing. I have a definite preference. I Dragon Age 2, I think, is like legit really fun. Um, I think it's the best one unpopular opinion but whatever um so in in particular uh dragon age inquisition which is the last one you have a party member named dorian who belongs to this like uh uh, empire of mages called tevinter which is like vaguely arab and infused um and they have slavery and so uh, something that dorian says at one point to you as the inquisitor is in the south meaning here you have alienages slums both human and elven so people where places where these people live in poverty the desperate have no way out back home into Vinter, a poor man can sell himself as a slave he can have a position of respect comfort and could even support a family some slaves are treated poorly it's true but do you honestly think inescapable poverty is better like the game mass effect also has a sequence in the second one where you are asked to navigate the idea that there could be a good implementation of indentured servitude, like among the Asari. I do not know why Bioware keeps wanting to be like, what if, but what if slavery was actually good? What if, what if under the right circumstances, why are you so judgmental about slavery? It's like, no, dude, owning people is not the thing. Like, we're not, do- like, I don't know. It just, it, it imagines somebody who looks at this and will go, huh, they make some good points. And I think that's absolutely wild. Um, and and part of, part of this, I'm sure, is also having to cater to like a player base that has, you know, different political orientations at the start. I mean, um, I mean, the, the way like that's that's even articulated as like an interesting uh, mental conundrum, uh, I right. think very much resonates with. Yeah, especially, you know, reading it in 2022. Um, and not that this didn't exist then, but in like 2022, online culture, just asking questions culture, you know, yes, people more interested in what they think are like, yeah, again, like interesting philosophical problems that, you know, in, in the abstract, um, it seems very yeah. much consistent with that mode of thinking about um, ethical problems, which is uh, incredibly problematic in and of itself. Yeah, I mean, I think along with this, I've I've been talking about this imagined player as being a sort of milquetoast liberal, but they're also white. I think very much like these. This is also how you pitch slavery as a as a head scratcher to white people, right? Um, I mean, similarly, 
the the other big thing that ke- that keeps coming up and the bioware keeps trying to sell as if it is you know really something that needs more nuanced thought is uh genocide um these games give you at my count a minimum of three opportunities to do a genocide if you would like to uh and then congratulates you so heartily for choosing not to do it (laughs) Um, like to my count you can exterminate the last rachnite queen which will end that species uh you can secretly re-put in the genophage which will make all krogan continue to be mostly sterile for the rest of time uh, and you can choose to anni- wipe out the Geth, which are the main uh, artificial intelligence uh, machine race in these games. Um, Shepard could do all three of those on one playthrough if they wanted to. They could personally extinguish three races. Um, and in every case, you know, the, the games really go out of their way to like make as much of a fair and and balanced argument for why like maybe you should genocide these groups as possible. Um, but it's it's also in each case, like replaying that David Cage thing of, you know, of using different species as metaphors for yes. some parts of humans. And so it's like, okay, here we have like a, a an, an AI completely mechanical species. What about this time? No? Okay, well, here we have like a, a spider insect type of species. What about now? Uh, uh, no, and it's okay. got a weird collective consciousness, and they they fought us one time before. So, like, what do you think? It's like okay, so no, that okay. Well, what about now? You got this other, you got this other like dinosaur yeah. species, and you befriend one of them. What about this time? <laughs> it's like they they keep like swapping them out. It's like yeah, like they have no fresh ideas. They just keep trying the same tricks. And I don't know why genocide is the one. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, I think it's again it's really like, extreme. I think it's again this idea that in order to have. A, you know, meaningful choice within games. It's again, like the game is not and games in general are not confident enough to present actually interesting, realistic choices. So everything has to become literally a question of slavery or genocide. Yeah, um, because yeah. For, for the game to think that they're offering a, a meaningful choice to the player, that's where they have to push it. Because they don't, yeah, they don't trust enough. In, I don't know if they don't trust the player, if they don't trust the game in itself, that they can offer offer more nuanced, smaller scale choices that nonetheless, and in in a lot of cases, I think would be more more meaningful. Um, I was actually just playing, or I recently played. I think we talked about the last time. The Life is Strange True Colors, and I was going to bring up Life is Strange. And so, yeah. so this is so this is a very this is kind of a minor spoiler because if you don't really know the context, it's not going to mean anything to you. But if you if you don't want to be spoiled, you know, skip ahead a minute. Um, but you know, the first life is strange would off would often offer these kind of huge kind of life and death style choices where it's very clear, you know, there's, you know, the outcome is, is, uh, you know, enormous. Some of those were, were kind of taken, taken back kind of in almost dream sequences, which is, which is cheap, but you didn't know that at the time. Anyway, the newest one, it ends the big, the big climactic choice is basically, do you forgive this person or not? That's a great climactic choice. And that's motivated by character. Yeah. Like it's And it's like the thing that you're asked to forgive or not for is is quite huge. 
It is not quite like, do you forgive somebody for genocide? It is not that to that extent, <laughs> right? We're still dealing with basically, you know, small town scenarios in Life is Strange. Um, within the context of that, it, within the context of like the closed world of Life is Strange, like the thing that happened is, is pretty significant. But it's still mm-hmm. like, I don't think previous games would have ended with that choice, right? So, um, right, you're not actually choosing between um, Bay or Bay. Which, you know, yes, as, in like, yeah. as, in, as in Life is Strange 1, right? Here you're actually, it's a kind of a, a much smaller scale human choice where ultimately, you know, nothing in terms of the plot itself or the narrative is going to be affected by that choice. Like the consequences that certain people are going to face are going to remain the same regardless of whether you personally choose to forgive somebody or not, which makes that choice so much more interesting to me. Right. And neither of those is, I mean, unless the game sets it up this way, which I haven't played it and I don't know, neither of those, both of those are defensible and human responses to things. It's not those, those choices aren't one thing is so transparently the only morally defensible thing to do. And the other makes you a war criminal. Yes. Yeah. And it's also presented in, again, like it's a very personal choice. It's not like forgive this person. And by forgiving them, that means you also help them like cover up everything they did. So nobody finds out and they don't face any repercussions. Right. Versus, you know, don't forgive them and then it's exposed. It's like, no, go to this, jail. This, yeah. like, this person's going to suffer what are the consequences of their actions. It's very much like on a one-to-one human level, do you forgive this character? And I think that's like, I like the that. most significant choice of the Life is Strangers. And I wish I like more games would, you know, would have confidence in their characters and their stories to do more of that. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's weird that the the game wants to reach for these extremes so much because so much of the story of particularly Mass Effect 3 and the ending is about discovering a middle path in lots of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you play your hand right, you don't have to do a genocide on the Geth and you can have them and the main species there in conflict with the Corians reconcile and find a way to coexist. You know, if you've played your hand right... I mean, by for the ending, you get a magical. Well, so here's third choice, so, which is so, no. So here's the thing, right? Because that magical third choice didn't exist initially, right? And that and that was what people complained about, and that's what they had to patch in because of the complaints. And I think, you know, the magical third choice had to exist, and you know, the complaints existed because up until that point, the game had been again telling everybody, "There's oh, there's always a negotiated position that you can take. That in a hundred percent of the cases is probably the ideal position to take, right? That you can always you can always reconcile these two things. You can always find you know the synthesis. And then when they got to the end and that choice wasn't available to them, people became furious. And you know, on the one hand, you could say, okay, you know, these are just you know." whiny entitled gamers who want things their way and don't want the story to end the way that, you know, it is quote unquote intended by the the writers of the story. But it's actually, you know, I think they had a case that the what the game has set up until that point should have allowed for that third choice because that's the thesis of the game up until that point. Right. That's how the logics of every every plot point have been set up so far. Yeah, and it, it is yeah. kind of a cop out. And and you know and, and again it, it's such a it's such a false understanding the world that there is always going to be a negotiated choice available and that in all the situations that's probably the best thing to do yes it's it's very um it's very like radicalization is hurting all of us it's very like if only the sides would come together and compromise for the good of the nation like it's very that right it's it's yeah Um, we need to find common ground across both aisles type of rhetoric which again is presents itself as politically neutral 
but is very much, you know, the rhetoric of the center. That's how the center gains power um, by making the cent by making kind of the centrist argument seem natural and and desirable 100 percent of the time. Right. So it's, and, and the game completely plays into that, which is which is quite yeah. frustrating. Yeah, one of the other things I find continually frustrating at this is it it does in some of its better, particularly, you know, side quests and stuff, it does dig a little bit into some of what people feel forced to do in this world because of economic systems and because of uh positions they're pushed into by this intergalactic capitalism. We don't ever get to have a conversation or find out, you know, did every species simultaneously independently evolve identical capitalism mm. and arrive at that as the only natural? Co- like of all these different species with different who the game is going out of their way to try to say, have different cultural points, have different biology, have different all this different stuff. Everyone arrives at exactly an identical, inevitable feeling version of capitalism and it makes me insane through this entire thing because the game does not manage to ever it just manages to like tisk tisk it's too bad that kid grew up poor on the citadel and like got involved with gangs but it doesn't ever it has nothing to say about that you know despite wanting to play in these like big um big society level ideas i don't know why you would set up a situation where all these different alien species have these different um goals and motivations and cultural touchstones and everything and not have anything to say about about this as like such a fundamental part of the world. Um, and this is something that always drives me nuts in big sci-fi things. I, I have this like gut level instinct where I'm just like, man, I hope we don't export capitalism off earth. I hope it's a virus that we have contained to our, our planet. Um, but this is again, like all that all that structural stuff is just like, unquestioned and self-evident and like the game has nothing to say or think about any of that um yeah i mean if anything it speaks to for a lot of people the impossibility to imagine alternatives to our current political and economic situation (laughs) that's it it's it's the the um, fake positioning of capitalism and our specifically like early 21st century capitalism as inevitable and natural and like of course of course everyone did like don't ask questions about like whether it makes sense that like the Turians evolved the same system, that, you know. Um, which again, like, is is a fine thing to write about if you're interrogating that as a position, which you know a game could do. Sure, but I mean, I the game wants to play around with um, how do these other species organize uh, things like military structures? How do they? distribute education and knowledge um how what are their cultural artifacts like i think they i think there's enough about how the cultural landscapes of all these different species breaks down that it does become weird at a point that there's no that like um the economics or like the material circumstances don't really become become too much of a part of that uh except maybe the Koreans, but yeah, I mean the the last the the very last thing to say about about this about the kind of political person that I think these games imagine as a player is um I mean I wasn't really paying attention to games media at the time but I also know that I think there was some news around the fact that in you know right from Mass Effect 1 it was possible to have a a romance and a sex scene with Liara, who is your Asari squad mate, who presents as female, even if you're a female shepherd. Um, 
And I I think that particularly in the, at the time, um, which like uh, queer representation in the media w- was at a, quite a different place in, in 2007 than it is even now. Like some of that stuff changed so quickly. But it, it's very weird to me that, you know, when I first became aware of these, I became aware of this franchise as being like quite queer friendly and queer positive um when really i think the game is kind of ham-fisted and bashful about about its views on on uh like queerness and gender and, and sexuality despite clearly wanting to talk about it like there's when when liara expresses romantic interest in you you your two of your options to respond are but you're a girl or but you're an alien and it's like okay which kind of queer do you want to be surprised that you are <laughs> in this case um but you know like like i said the asari are designed from the ground up to be like the alien race that captain kirk would like go bed right like they they're designed to be seducible um and it's there's so much about this that is that is weird to me so first of all i think it's telling that you can have the lesbian sort of lesbian romance but with male shepherd there's no gay romantic option until mass effect 3 like they don't i think that says something about how um they think that their player base can find something i won't suggest what to like about watching a lesbian love scene including potentially a female character but will like take more time to potentially be able to accept yes and if, like a male and if i remember correctly that was like a point of contention in the discourse around the games like people kept kind of yeah. pushing at that which i think is why it it finally shows up in 3 but yeah i think you're exactly yeah. right that the you know the choice was made very strategically thinking you know yeah what what will please our imagined audience either way also, a thing that has always driven me nuts or that I found really weird about how the game deals with the Asari is um, a defining trait of this species is that they don't have gender. Like they don't have, they're not a, a two gender. There's not male Asaris and female Asaris. There's just Asaris. That is a non-binary character. Um, boy, does this game have no curiosity about what the Asari are if they aren't just women. Like, Every Asari is she, her. They're all treated as like within all the same sort of patterns as as human women. Um, it makes no sense that this species would present themselves to the galaxy as functionally women and not functionally as like some uh, some flavor of like non-binary. Um, and the game, the game doesn't present them as non-binary. It presents them as a race of only women. Even though, you know, Liara herself in, in the conversation where you get into a romance, she'll say, well, I'm not strictly a woman. Um, but then that's it. Then we're done with that idea. That's just dropped. That's gone. <laughs> that's gone. That's nowhere. Yeah, I mean, maybe this isn't giving the relationships enough credit, but just like the structure of them, it's like the the real thing is that which one do you want to have sex with, right? That's the real question yep. and like that's that's the real reward that you're building toward and that seems to be the only thing the games are really interested in in terms of your relationship with these other characters like can you say the right thing long enough so that in the third act you can have sex with the care with with the partner before you go on your final mission right that the way that it's structured is very much in that in that arc where that is that is your ultimate goal if if that's the goal you're wanting to pursue and everything else is just kind of leading up to that goal and none of the other interesting questions are 
are pursued that heavily. Yeah. I, I do think that, you know, particularly like you can romance Liara in all three games, for example. And I think people who choose that path tend to arrive at a place by by the third game where they feel it feels more connected and it feels more like a sustained longer relationship. So if you if you do that, does the arc work the same way where you're kind of starting over each game or does it continue if you if you romance from game to game? Because I, I remember when I played like my first game, I didn't romance anybody. Um, right. Because I was all business and didn't really like many any of the options. And then I think actually I think that I think I was kind of all business the whole way. I think I ended up romancing the secretary. Oh my god. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Abuse of power. Oh man, the sexual harassment rules on this ship are loose. <laughs> um, I remember what that character's name is. Uh trainer? Yep, that's it. Yep. She's a great character. I don't really blame you, except that this is another thing that doesn't read super well in 2022. It's like, boy, a shepherd running around sexually harassing all of their crew. <laughs> um, so it, it does a thing where, the like, because there will have been a, a, a gap between each of the games. Like, they don't pick up, like, the same minute the mm-hmm. last one left off. So in every case, you'll have been separated from that person for a little bit. Not, like, mm-hmm. in a romance separate but you've like been doing different stuff for like months or a year or something like that so when you reunite with them they'll they'll sort of be like unsure if you still feel something for them or if you've moved on so you sort of simultaneously they remember that you were together and they clearly like are ready for you to just pick up where you left off but also are like give you sort of an opportunity to say i'm not sure or like I don't know where I am right now or like, no, we're done. You know, so you, you sort of get a, a reset, but also. Right. Cause you gotta get, to cause you it. gotta go to the, get to the third act, the third act banging. You wouldn't have seen this because you romance trainer who's human and a woman boy. It is so funny. They will like give you body shots and like sexy action stuff with any of the human and particularly human women characters. Any of the aliens, they're just like, Time to have sex now fade to black. <laughs> They're just like, we are too overwhelmed by the idea of animating how like a Turian and a human mm-hmm. would have sex. We're not doing it. Like fully clothed, just and then and then they did it. <laughs> Which is like I I simultaneously get it and also it's it's just funny to me. Did you ever play as male shepherd? Because I didn't, so I don't even know what that is like. My first playthrough I played as male shepherd. And really? I Romance, yeah, because I wanted to have the most default experience first. I've never played as male shepherd again. Oh, so, so that's, and I've replayed these games a lot of times. <laughs> so that's the other thing about these games. It's that yeah, it's like they very much, despite the fact that I think universally, like the Jennifer Hale voice is preferred and like that characterization is preferred. Um, it seems from anyone who plays both that yeah, up through three, I think the marketing just had male shepherd on. As like the default, like on all the marketing, it was just him alone. I think for Legendary Edition, they don't actually put Shepard on the on the cover, um, and I think that's the first time where they weren't like here. This is clearly how we're imagining it, but we also give you this other option. Well, in in for three, there are some trailers for when three came out that had both Shepherds. Okay, but not on the cover um, though. The cover is no, not on not on the cover. And the interesting thing, male Shepherd. The interesting thing about that to me too is that. Male Shepard is just like a buzz cut space marine mm-hmm. who looks exactly like every other protagonist. 
Femme Shepherd looks distinct. She looks like a main character. She has like bright, distinctive red hair, like in a cut that nobody else had. Like she has main character design elements. John Shepard, even now, I couldn't pick out of a lineup if he wasn't wearing N7 mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting that they chose the less visually distinct option um, for, for all of their marketing. Uh, I mean, you know why that happened and why I happened, why, and I know why that happened. But, but yeah, I, I, I forgot or I didn't know that that's what you went through in your first playthrough. Um, I remember you going through these games so fast. Yes, I, can, I consumed them very fast. Here's the thing I actually remember the most. Okay. Is that you finished two, and I, I think um, I was living elsewhere. So I got an email from you. You were talking about finishing two, or we had chatted about it. And you said, you know, I'm going to take, I'm going to take some time before I start three. I don't feel like starting it right away. Because I played them right back to back. Like I had been. Yeah. yeah. And then the next thing I know, like very shortly after, you're almost done three. And coincidentally, you had called in sick a bunch of days to work. <laughs> I, you mean I had been sick and stayed home from work and happened to have something excellent to distract myself with. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, it's funny you mentioned the work thing because one of my clearest memories of my first playthrough is, um, so Mass Effect 2, the sort of culminating final mission is for me one of the highlights of all the games, which it's called the suicide mission. You basically have to do this mission into dark space where all of your crew are assuming that you're probably not going to be able to return. It's great. It's a great mission. It's really well built up. Excellent structure to that game. Um, but I remember the first time playing it through. So one night I had gotten everything done. So the only thing left to do was go on the suicide mission and finish the game. And I remember that whole day at work, all I could think about was like being so worried about my sleep. Like I remember talking to a coworker about it, <laughs> about being worried about what would happen, like who in my squad is going to die. Because I think I knew that like your squad members can mm. die like permanently mm-hmm. on that, but that it's not guaranteed. And I hadn't looked at like what makes any of that happen. So I wanted to just like play it out. I just remember that entire day being under the shadow of like, oh my God, when I get home, I have to do this thing. It was so solemn and so intense. And like, that's, again, that's so quaint to me now, right? Oh man, um, I, wonder if it, I, I wonder if that stress is what made you sick that you just had to call in sick from work for the next week. Just the, <laughs> the stress of thinking about what's going to happen in your suicide mission. I mean, all, all my squad members survived. Response. Yeah, weird, right? Um, I was sick is what I remember, okay. but... You know, I was not there to verify. Um, I will just have to take your word for it. <laughs> no one's saying the timing didn't work out well. So I guess, yeah, I mean, that's the thing at the like all of this stuff, especially when I first played it, all this shit worked on me like this. This game is so good at producing the effects that it wants to produce sometimes when it's at its best. Like this, this game when it's really working, knows how to let a moment breathe so well. Things like, you know, when you see the Citadel for the first time, when you're like approaching in your spaceship, you get this like beautiful ambient sci-fi music and these great establishing shots. Like it's just, it's so special. Like some of the moments of development with, with your, your key characters, like you'll have single beats in a converse like this game there's there's a character that you get in mass effect 2 who is one of my least favorite characters at that point whose name is morden um who was oh, that was your least favorite character at a certain point 
He was, I did not, I didn't feel anything really for Morden in Mass Effect 2. Um, he's, he has a history of being involved in, in like, um, their equivalent of like CIA style stuff where he had a role in like this, the thing I refer to the genophage, which is like a quasi sterilization thing that they did to the Krogan. Um, and I like, he was fine, but I didn't feel anything from him in Mass Effect 2. This game in Mass Effect 3 turned me around 100% and made that one of my favorite characters in this whole thing over the course of one conversation where like he is constantly maintained that what he did was the right thing to do and you're pushing him on it and he has the chance to reverse it and he snaps and goes, I was wrong. And it's like this force of like someone who you can see it's been percolating and they've been struggling with it and just like cracks and has the revelation like it it's so good at spinning those things like when this game works it works so well in mass effect 3 there's a bunch of times when it gets these huge incredible set pieces you're like on the back of a car firing machine gun as a reaper is like chasing you you know you have this moment when the genophage is cured using this like satellite thing that like rains down like there's there's incredible expressive moments of character and of long plots coming to coming to a head. Um, I really did feel very like deeply connected to um, both the people that I, I romanced by the end and also my sort of core squad mates that you have over and over again. Um, like this is this is there's so much good here. There's so much goofy stuff. Like it's funny at a lot of moments. I I just think that these there really is something great about these games. Um, you also just can't ask too much from them in some of the ways that I like to ask a lot of games. I think so. It, it, is, is you that, know, is that something? Is that thought something that is new? Having played them this time, or is that what you thought about them at the time? So I think at the time I still saw a lot of flaws, but what the the flaws I saw were writerly flaws. Whereas now I'm like, also the combat's kind of boring. It's just a cover shooter system that doesn't really evolve in any kind of interesting way. And the Paragon Renegade system does not work. Um, the lead up to, you know, like I think I have more gamic criticisms now, whereas before I would be like, that scene's badly written. Like I could read you that. This this decision, this uh, the way that this plotline plays out doesn't make sense because of this thing that you set up earlier. Like I would have had those kinds of criticisms, but now when I look at it, I see a game that is like a solid B or B minus on the mechanical level, and like just a good old time with a lot of the like character and setup stuff. You know what I mean? And that's okay. That like RPG stuff, you know. Sometimes that's just that's just RPG stuff, man. Yeah. And I mean, so before we wrap up, I'm just wondering. So you know, you talked a lot about all this really big picture, abstract, thematic stuff. Um, is there anything now that you when you replayed them, like anything like very specific that stood out to you as uh, either something that you really remembered enjoying, or or you know gave you a lot of pleasure this time, or displeasure? I'm just thinking about, you know, like the world itself, like getting into the specifics of the game. I mean, you mentioned the music. I think the music is the highlight of these games. Yeah. Um, the music is incredible. Um, I but Is that rendition favorite, of Hamlet? That I, like that's something that stands out to me all the time. Is, Elcor Hamlet. Yeah, is very funny. Um, do you remember Morden singing Gilbert and Sullivan? Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, Maybe my favorite um, 
NPC, like minor NPC in all of games is in this. Matriarch Athena is a uh, Asari bartender on uh, on Ilium in Mass Effect 2, who turns out to be Liara's dad, whose dad was a Krogan and is like really tough and gruff. I'm, I'm not going to recount that, but if you hmm. go back and watch it, like every line in that conversation makes me laugh out loud. It is such a goddamn delight. <laughs> I just, it is... It is so beautiful. It just the the joy that it feel fills me with is is incredible. Um, you know, uh, the end of Tali's loyalty mission, where she's been renamed Tali Zoravas Normandy. Like the idea of her name formalizing this like found family idea and this idea of home being like the Normandy, the ship that you share with all of your squad mates, um, is is a, a beautiful and in world and um, completely you know, uh, species motivated touch, um, that moved me absolutely to tears the first time it, it happened. Um, I love all the big things where you are, oh my God, unleashing the Thresher Maw onto Chanka to, to fight the Reaper that's there. Holy shit. That's fun. Um, although, okay. Thresher Maws are from, once again, you asked me about the little shit. So here it is. Thresher Maws are from Tuchanka, but in Mass Effect 1, you can find them on all different worlds. How did these like planet-sized monsters get onto all, like did the did the Krogan bring them everywhere? That makes no sense. Also, you fight them multiple times. And one of the backstories that you can pick for Shepard is that she was traumatized by her entire squad having been wiped <laughs> out by a Thresher Maw attack. And you meet them again and again, these games. And there's no, Shepard's not like, shook at all <laughs> there's like no no responding to that it's just like damn you guys see that thresher ma that shit's crazy anyway <laughs> remember the formative event in your life that was because of one of these things no okay all right that's fine we'll move on oh uh, so yeah so any final thoughts you know this is uh this is your you're putting your stamp on mass effect you know you're this will be the last time you can speak of mass effect so are there any how do you want to wrap it? It will not up? be. I will speak about it frequently. This will be the last there. time you can speak of Mass Effect. Um, don't read the tie-in books and resist space capitalism. A better world is possible, but not like this. <laughs> a very, that's maybe the most optimistic thing you've said in years, if not ever. That's as optimistic I as I, I can I somehow get. doubt you actually believe that. But I think it's possible. I just don't think we'll. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's that's for another time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening to this, you know, particularly weird and rambly episode. As always, uh, if you want to find more information about the show, we are at neverwasagamer.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at neverwasagamer. Yeah. And so we've just got two episodes left. We're wrapping up, you know, two episodes from now, we'll be doing a full, you know, show wrap up really dig down into um you know your takeaways from this from this exercise if we want to call it that uh but but our next episode we're going to be doing one more game one final game i think it's an appropriate game to end on it is breath of the wild you've been playing it now for well over a month breath of the wild probably 50 hours oh that's it okay that's not I would have guessed you you sunk more into it, but um, could be more. Spoiler could alert: I think Michelle's liking it. Breath of the Wild. <laughs> so I'm I'm really excited to kind of dig into that with you and 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 learn more about what exactly you liked and maybe what you didn't. Uh, but you've got to go back uh, and keep playing that now because there is a lot of game there. 
Um, so thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time when Michelle will have uh, finished Breath of the Wild. Because seeing a mountain and then going there is an essential part of being a gamer.